Joshua Sp- not Spurlock, uh, Martin. Thank goodness. Yeah. Joshua Martin was taken to the emergency room this morning with a uh, possible appendicitis. The MRI or CMI or CBD or ultrasound or whatever it was determined that uh, he's he's actually a male, not a female, and he does not have an appendicitis. Um, so he is home recuperating on the couch. Um, but we lost uh, we lost the minion because of that, so uh, he is uh, he is better. But as uh, many of us understand, um, this could keep going and, and become an appendicitis. So, uh, as you're praying this week, I hope that you'll add him to your prayers, and certainly Susie. I mean, she's a mom of four kids, and one of us uh, enough to go to the emergency room. So let's let's pray for her and for the whole family as well. Um, I did mention earlier about uh, our president recognizing Jerusalem as the current and eternal capital of uh, Israel, and that the UN had voted to condemn that action and. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight other countries voted alongside the United States to reject the UN's condemnation. That was Israel, Nauru, we're, we're going to look that up sometime next week, Micronesia, Togo, Palau, Palau, the Marshall Islands, Honduras, and Guatemala. 35 nations actually abstained, which is better than voting for. Uh, including Australia, Canada, and Mexico. It's like 57 or something like that. Wait, well, states, countries? Countries. That were abstention or... No, there's 35 that abstained, but there's like a total the, of... The, the, the 20, I think there were 20 something that didn't vote at all. They just didn't show up. They just decided to be absent that day. Okay. And then there are about 190 countries in total. 190 well, countries. I think there was like 128 that voted. Yeah, it was like 128. Well, we, know, we know for a fact that 35 abstained, and this these 10, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 voted uh, with, the US. with us. So, um, They say it's like a mafia thing, but uh, 
Nikki Haley, our ambassador to the United Nations, has made it clear that they're taking names. They want to know who voted against Israel, who voted against us doing it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when you come with your hands open, asking for even more than we already give you, we will remember. Mr. Trump, I hope, remembers, and I hope he slaps him down pretty hard. Uh, so 128 voted against us, so we ought to cut our expenses by a proportional amount. It, uh, it really is astounding. Better this is the first all. president. This <laughs> is the first president that has actually said to the UN, how come we're paying for everything? Mm-hmm. So hopefully that'll change. Vaidi Gosh, and he approached the fifth Tevet. Um, we did mention earlier that the fast of the tenth month. There's a fast of the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth that will that are fast days: mourning, gloom, um, sadness, which are going to be turned into days of joy and gladness, festivals, as it were, uh, when Messiah returns. And uh, it's hard for that to happen if it's not even a day on your calendar. This Thursday is the last of the 10th month, Asura Tevet, and that uh, commemorates the siege on Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. So I hope that you're going to fast along with all of Israel. My final comment is uh, once again to lift up my two sons-in-law, Gregory Bartos and Joshua Spurlock. Uh, for uh, teaching the Men of Torah class two weeks ago. Um, It was a a song class to to learn songs. And uh, the quintessential song was the Mode Ani, which is the the prayer that we're supposed to pray when we wake up in the morning. While your eyes are still closed and you realize that your spirit is still with you, I gratefully thank you, O living and eternal King, for you have returned my soul within me with compassion. Abundant is your faithfulness. What a great way to start your day. Whether you believe that he takes your soul during the night and gives it back or not, it's not the point. It's that you're starting your day with gratefulness and thankfulness to God. And uh, I just want to... You're still alive, the way. And we're still alive. That's that's a biggie, you know. Um, but I want to publicly thank these men for teaching me this because I can not only sing that and teach you that song, uh, but I know what it means, and I do it by heart in both Hebrew and English. So I'm thanking God for life itself before I even open my eyes, and uh, I wouldn't be able to do that without these two men. So I want to encourage you, jump online, grab that, listen to that, and follow these guys. And if you hear them humming... Listen to what they're humming. It must be important. It's probably a new class coming. <laughs> There's okay. many resources now under the songs and tunes that you can go to the Zim Road. That's right. The... We've got a new tab on yes. the Menatora site for that. And uh, do you add the Mudeani uh, for Texas? That uh, no, we need. We've got to add that on there. Yeah, That's I was going to say thank you, Mudeani. It was good. I uh, I listened to it thirty four. Times, yeah, you know, yeah. and a little little yeah. cartoon that goes with it. We need that, on there. so it was, it was good stuff. But the song's different for women. Moda. Yeah, Moda. Moda. Okay, yeah, right. song's different for But of course, we're talking about men of Torah. So, men, you need to learn the women's song. Teach it to your to your wives. That's great. If you happen to be a widow, come see me. We'll work on it together. Oh, Joshua, I gotta tell you. 
It's so great that I don't have to leave this. <laughs> God bless you for that. It's so great that he does it so well. Mm-hmm. It is so great. Amazing. He does. No pressure. No pressure on this at all. <laughs> yeah. He's good. He's good. Um, and with that, I've got nothing. No. Um, <laughs> Thank thanks for coming. For coming. <laughs> That's right. We're done. I was hoping announcements would last a little longer. <laughs> um, um, no, no, no. This is a good. This is good. This is a really good lesson. Um, a really good tour portion talking about Joseph. Um, I like to try to ask Sophia a question. Sophia, so if you do something bad at home, what do you have to do afterwards? Sophia doesn't do anything. If you were to do something bad <laughs> on the rare occasion, <laughs> like if you were, if you, if you took a toy away from Zoe, did you have to do what? If you get it back, right? Very good. And you say you're sorry. Yeah. Very good. Those are good things to do. Because you have to, it's not enough to just, you know, feel bad. But you have to do something, right? Right. Right. Very good. That was very good. Good job. Um, That was an immediate answer, too. That's good. No hesitation, like, um, run away, hide the toy. No, those are not Did you just see the van ride on the way here? Oh, Sophia. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, But no, this week's all about repentance. This is like, this is the big one for Judah. And I think that one of the great parts about this lesson is, um, is how Judah repents. And I think it would be, I think it would behoove us to look briefly at the passage. So, um, if I can go down. So it's, uh, Judah comes up and, uh, meets with, with Joseph. And it says, um, I just want to read a few, a few of the verses. 44, so 44, starting in verse 18. Um, and, uh. And I want to specifically highlight some things that he has to say. So, um, starting off in verse, let's see, um, 30. So, setting the story up, in case you didn't read last week, Joseph says, Joseph is king of, oh, viceroy of Egypt. He sends the brothers away, says, you can't come back unless to get more food unless you have Benjamin with you. Because ben, Joseph is testing his brothers without telling them who he is. He's in disguise. Uh, testing them to see if they're really repentant about their treatment of him. So will they treat Benjamin the same way? So they finally convince Jacob to let Joseph, Benjamin come with them so they can get more food. They bring Benjamin. Everything's great. And then when Benjamin leaves, Joseph tells his servant, um, hey, put my golden cup in the Benjamin's bag. We're going to play a game. We're going to test brothers to see if they really repented or if they're going to throw Benjamin under the bus like they did me. So they, out of the wagon, I guess, is the more appropriate time phrase. So they, um, they, they come back and they capture, the, they, 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 uh, they intercept them. He says, someone's stolen the cup. They're like, oh, come on. We would never do that. They open all the bags. There it is in Benjamin's bag. Brothers are distraught. They all come back to Egypt. At this point, in the very end of the last parashah, Joseph is like, look, I won't take you all as slaves. I just want Benjamin because he stole the cup. Now, remember some important things about the Joseph sale, as we look at some verses now, what are some highlights? Number one, Judah is the one who says, let's sell Joseph. The brother brothers wanted to kill him. So jo- Judah's actually on the good side here. It's hard to believe that. You think to yourself, better son. I think Judah's motivation is 100% pure. Still better. But, well, but, he doesn't, but he, what he does is wrong. And the reason is, that's what I'm going to get at. The reason that it's wrong is not so much because his motivations were bad, but because he acted um, really more cowardly, I think, would be the best way to put it. And his, as the leader of the brothers, he says, let's sell Joseph, because they would all agree with that. So they do. He also is the one who's like, 
and is the leader of the group that decides, let's tell our father, let's put blood all over Joseph's coat, send it to our father, and, oh, do you, does this coat look familiar to you? And the, Jacob is, you know, distraught because he believes Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. So, verse 30, Judah has stepped forward. He is now intervening with the most powerful man on the planet right now. And this is what he says. And now, if I come to your servant, my father, and the youth, talking about Benjamin, is not with us, since his soul is so bound up with his soul, it will happen that when he sees the youth is missing, he will die. And your servants will have brought down the hoariness of your servant, our father, in sorrow to the grave. For your servant, talking about himself, Judah, took responsibility for the youth from my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I will have sinned to my father for all time. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the youth as a servant to my Lord, and let the youth go up with his brothers. For how can I go up to my father if the youth is not with me, lest I see the evil that will befall my father? And if you read this passage, which you notice is missing, he doesn't say, and it's not fair, because Benjamin didn't really take the cup. He shouldn't have to say. He doesn't go there at all. What he focuses on is his own sin. His sin before was he was, uh, he was calloused towards his father's grief because it was easier to lie to his dad about Joseph. He was cowardly in the way that he led his brothers in selling Joseph into slavery rather than standing up for Joseph and possibly taking them all on. Judah has made a 180-degree change. Amen. Now he's standing for the most powerful man on the planet that could have him executed just for making comments to him and is saying, take me instead. I will be the slave. Remember, what does he do? He had sold Joseph into slavery. It was almost a penalty worse than death. And now he's saying, almost like, in a, like the ultimate coon, take me. I'll be your slave. Don't let it be Benjamin. But he's not doing it for Benjamin. He's doing it for his father because that was sin before. He had been callous towards his younger brother and he had been callous towards his father. His motives, I think, were pure earlier, but his actions were wrong because they were based on taking the easy way out and doing what was morally incorrect because it was easier and safer for him. Now he has completely changed and he's willing to do, put literally everything on the line in order to do the right thing today. That is repentance. Amen. But remember when, when Joseph was, was being uh, called by Potiphar's wife, what did he say? How can I sin against you, against my master, and God, right? right? So it was his father that he was concerned about, his father God that he was right. concerned about. And here, you're right. Yehuda has realized, I sinned against my father. I didn't just sin against my brother. I sinned against my father when I did that. Right. Awesome, right? So right. He's, he's learned the lesson. I think the guy that I like to look at, no, no question, Jude's the guy, right? But I look back at Reuben, and we see later on, Right, that Reuben's concept is, hey, you know, if we don't if we don't bring him back, it's no big deal. You can kill my kids. As a, well, as, as if that's some kind of <laughs> that's not sages. The sages mock him for that one. Yeah. Like, and Jacob's like, you're crazy. <laughs> Definitely not in with you. Right? Like, what are you nuts? <laughs> you know, good stuff. Well, Reuben tried too. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Reuben said fit him in the pit because Reuben planned to come back and get him later. Right, right. Supposedly, you yeah. And but that was, was like, exactly the same thing I feel like with Judah. I'll go continue. Well, Reuben was saying, trying to say an equivalency. Well, if I don't bring him back, then you can have my sons because he fully expected to bring him back. Right. But we see that he did keep Simeon. So we know that there was the reality to them that as Simeon was kept for a couple of years at least, there's a chance that Joseph would have kept him. Right. He would have. It, it wasn't a 
a blind offer thinking it wouldn't be accepted. It was one that would say, oh, totally. I expect you to fully pay against this life. Rashi, Rashi teaches that J Judah was taking it. Well, so on the surface level, it's very obvious that Judah is trying to offer himself up. Rashi teaches that uh, he had a backup plan, that if that didn't work, he was going to take Joseph on in combat. That, like, he was... There's, there's all sorts of... The mirage around the brothers is so cool. It's kind of silly, but it's so cool. Like, the, this story in the Midrash sounds like, um, you know, an X-Men movie. Like, basically, uh, uh, Simeon and Levi, uh, they get, like, they're, they, they, they get so tense in this, like, back and forth. They, they start yelling, and, like, all of Egypt is shaking. And, like, and then Ephraim and Menashe, who are also, you know, Hebrew, we don't know that, they're secrets, they respond back, and, like, everything gets quiet again. And, like, it's all, like, you know, and, like, you know, supposedly one of the brothers, like, his chest hair was, like, steel, and, like, ripped through the top of his shirt, you know. It's like, <laughs> these guys are, like, they're superheroes. That was the idea. But the, that may sound silly, but the reason why they teach that, I think, is because they're trying to emphasize that, first off, that righteous people can, are not chained to the physical reality, that, like, God is able to do miracles for people. But also, it's all to, to highlight the fact that, like, these brothers were willing to do everything for Benjamin now, and that jo Judah was prepared if necessary. He says, you were like Pharaoh. So Rashi interprets that as saying, like, just as I'm not afraid of you, I'm not afraid of Pharaoh. Like, if I have to take you on, I will take you on and I will win because I'm going to defend Benjamin at any cost. If I can't convince you with words, I will defeat you with actions. And, but I think that that's so huge because Judah, to, to that point, that's what Judah didn't do before. He took the easy way out. And I think that's really what, I feel like for most righteous people, that's 90% of our sin. Like, very rarely do we do something that we know is wrong, we thought about it a long time, decided to do it completely anyway. Like, that's really not, normally, it's like, well, we're looking at these things and it's kind of hard. It's like, well, this one would be better, but it's really hard, so I'm the easy one. That's normally when we, when we sin, you know, we, we speak Lashon Hurrah, not because we really want to speak negatively about somebody, but because that's what everybody else was talking about, so I just joined in, you know. We decided not to get up and pray that morning, not because we really don't like our prayers, but because we were a little tired and... I just uh, 10 more minutes of sleep would probably be good. You know, whatever it might be, like, it's normally something where we take the easy way out. And that's what Judah did. Judah took the easy way out. Now, it had catastrophic consequences. Yeah. But that was his sin. So here, he has completely changed. And I, I, I listened to the Yishai Fleischer show. He was, the, the impression I was getting from that that was so cool is it's like, Judah offers hope for us. Judah is, by repenting, dramatic, huge way. They call him the Baal, he's a master of repentance, the Baal Teshuvah. Um, it's hope to us because you would think that Judah, all people, would be defined by his sin. He was the guy who sold his brother into slavery. How could you ever overcome that? How could you ever be anything different than that? How could you ever do anything different than that? It's like, that's it. It's hopeless. It's just who I am. But Judah so more, uh, spectacularly redefines himself here. He is so dramatically in repentance that in that one act, he completely changes the narrative of who he is. He's no longer the cowardly leader that sold his brother into slavery. He is now the strong progenitor of the kingdom of the leaders of Israel. And he is taking that throne right here in this room through repentance. And I think that's just such an encouragement to us. Like, it doesn't matter what you've done before. In the moment that you get tempted again, if you defy it, if you go back and you obey this time instead of doing what you did before, it's as though all of that didn't happen. Like, you can erase the past. You can redefine who you are. And that idea that like you don't have to be in despair, you don't have to be feel chained to your to your, you don't have to feel that sense of regret ongoing, like that Judah offers hope. I think it's so it's a beautiful part of this passage. Mm -hmm. So 
he, he's just repeated what his father has already done. His father has striven with God. Hmm. Right? And exactly what you just said about Judah is exactly what happened to his father. He was redefined. He was renamed. He was a new man. Walk with him. But, <laughs> but he, was, he was willing to take on even the Almighty. As you said, Judah was willing to take on even Pharaoh himself in order to make right, in order to, to do what was appropriate. I, I'm reminded of the, the, the name of the portion by Yigash. Um, and it just brings me back to, to Rick's classes over the years that we had um, on, on, temp, on the temple and on, on the, the, the degree of holiness that increases as you approach. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. um, this is temple language. Right, mm. he approached okay. Joseph. Right? So it's mm, it's right. like, wait a second, I'm I'm coming into a holy place. I'm I'm stepping close to someone, and that's what we desire. That's what the Amidah is all about, right? We're gonna right. we're gonna step close to God, and it just the whole thing just reminds us of that. That eventually we're gonna see the same kind of thing as we are given the ability and the privilege. Or Levites, and then by extension us, to draw close to the Holy One, mm. and that's what Jude is doing here, drawing close to the Holy One. How, how godlike that it's Judah who's actually drawing close to the the ultimate, just as Messiah can yeah and he um i like the fact that you mentioned that word so the word we read the english uh, he approached sounds like he came near it sounds very it just sounds like a, a directional verb but vayigash actually is a different meaning um, modern hebrew the, the word, root word same we're using for meeting pukash it's like if you want if you're kind of a meeting me and you you know get coffee or i get coffee with my dad that's a meeting um really also i think you could use the same thing for a more significant meeting having a meeting with your boss you know that's a meeting so um, when it says that uh, Judah approached, it was almost like this was an intentional moment. It wasn't like he just stepped forward. Right. He came up with a plan. He was going to have. He was going to have a head-to-head, head-to-head um, with, with a player. With yeah, with a with a leader, because um, they were going to meet to discuss what was going to happen over Benjamin. Yeah. Um, I think I like the fact that you uh, tying it into um, our faith. I was thinking about it from the perspective of. Uh, this reminds me of everyone always kind of brings Joseph as Messiah. We go back to Zechariah with this whole idea of like the people of Israel are going to repent and they're going to see Yeshua as Messiah. And as I was thinking this week about Judah's repentance and how his repentance is seemed to be like a measure for measure for what his sin was, like it, it like lined up so perfectly with exactly what he done wrong. I thought it was so interesting that in the book of Zechariah it doesn't say, and you know the people of Israel will see him think of Messiah. Of course, it's referencing God, but you know same thing. Um, see him, and they will all bow allegiance to him. It doesn't say that they will all fall on their knees and worship him. It says they will weep for him. It's when he weeps for an only son. And I thought about it this week. I thought, well, that's an interesting like thing to say. Why would that be so important? And then it hit me. It's like, you know what? We've had in the last 50 years a seismic shift in Orthodox Jewish views of Jesus, of Yeshua. They no longer see him as a myth. They no longer see him as... Um, an enemy. An enemy. I think there's fewer that see him as an enemy, at least. And the ones who see him as less of an enemy, some of them are even willing to say, maybe he could have been Messiah. Like, if we've been ready for it, maybe he could have been the one. Um, 
I've actually heard one say that. Uh, but then, but but I think what's so interesting is what's missing. What's missing is weeping. Yeah. What's missing is he was he was he was sold by corrupt leadership that no one in the Orthodox community had any you know compassion for. They don't like the, the corrupt priesthood that was then at that time either. And then he was murdered really by the Romans. Every year for Yom Kippur, we read through a lengthy prayer weeping over the massacre of the religious leaders by the Romans. Wait, and before that, several days before Yom Kippur, we've got the fast of the seventh for Gedaliah. For Gedaliah. Right, and, so and here's a righteous guy that got killed completely out of, out of, out of place. Right. Completely and not out of hope. Right, right. Yeah. And, and so it's like, what's missing to me as I think about it, I feel like it's missing in the Orthodox, well, the, the people that are starting to be okay with Yeshua, right? What's missing is the weeping. What's missing is even if you don't say he's Messiah or don't say he's God or whatever, there's no. But there's what's missing is like he was with you. Like if you really do acknowledge that he was a righteous guy, that means that like he was brutally murdered so by pagans yeah. because he was set up by hateful Jews who were jealous. Like we should be, you know, we should have a fast day set apart for that. Like that is a real tragedy, and instead. It's kind of pushed aside, like it just sort of happened in history. And so I think that when you read Zechariah, to me, just this week, because I'm thinking about it, it's like, I think that's going to be a momentous moment. Like, it's not just that the, the, I think the Jewish people would be idiots to not recognize he's Messiah when he's standing on the Mount of Olives and it's split in half. I, but I think what's different is that it's going to connect for them. They're going to feel that pain that has been absent for 2,000 years to realize you're one of us. Not, not you're God and that's great and we worship you, but more you're one of us. You are one of our people. And now we realize what our corrupt leadership and what the pagan Romans did to you, and now we are torn up over that. And we are so, um, we are so sad that that happened to you. And I just think that that, that is going to be a change. Amen. And they teach in the, in, the, in the sages when they talk about Esau's tears. They say that Esau grabs Jacob and hugs him and cries. And they, there's a lot of them where they real tears, fake tears, whatever, crocodile tears. Um, but the, one of the one commentator says, when Jacob's descendants shed tears like Esau shed tears, then God will, you know, God will hear them and everything will change. But it's like if the wicked can cry, right? What's missing is the righteous Amen. weeping over their own sin and whatnot. So that's, anyway, that's what we're looking forward to. Yes, sir. That was, that was really good. Yeah. I, I, uh, it makes a lot of sense, too, that. The, obviously, the revelation in this story leads to tears as well. Yeah, it's like a perfect mirror of that moment. Um, and to even add on to that, it seems like the—it's not that it's just a tragedy, as well like a generic, like, "Oh, we're so sad that that happened to you," but almost a realization that like it was personal, like it was also for me, like you did that for me. Oh, true. That that like bringing it home kind of thing, yeah. you know. Um, it's personal. Exactly, like it's the, strictly sort of business. Like the no, it's not right. It, it's it wasn't like a religious figure that just happened to be killed because of some circumstances. It was like no, this deliberately happened right. so that we can be standing here in this moment right now. Right, like that's that even right. elevates it even more. So so really cool. But I you you were mentioning all those things about Judah, and I thought that was so excellent. And it's interesting how much of that is mirrored for. Joseph being, but not for the same reasons, right? So all of that stuff happens. All of these great traits come out with Judah that we just described because his actions started off 
and like he did that to himself almost, right? These are self-inflicted things where he he made those mistakes, made those decisions, mm -hmm. and then rectified it and and made it right. right. The interesting thing is, so Ryan Jonathan Saxon goes off on some of the same points, but in the cases when you had nothing to do with it, and that's the story of Joseph. So he has circumstances happen to him, and yet reinterprets the the those occurrences. Uh, of like the, the the scenarios that happened to him. So uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was pointing out that like last week he was he was thinking he was arguing that he felt like Joseph was the first economist, and then this week he was thinking Joseph is like the first cognitive therapist, because he points out like Joseph is like the perfect guy that reinterprets everything that happened to him, and he kind of breaks down yeah, like yeah. the the cognitive therapy of, of like Jewish psychologists who are basically like you know. That uh, there's always more than one possible interpretation to everything that happens to us. We can choose between different interpretations. And the last thing is the way that we think shapes the way that we feel. And so he was pointing out, like, Joseph is, yeah. like, such a great example of reinterpreting everything that happened to him in a positive light. Mm -hmm. and, and shifts the way that he responds to his others, shifts the way that he responds to, to everyone, basically. He could have been depressed. He could have been... You know, uh, he could have really let what happened to him shape him for the negative, uh, and, right. and would not have been able to have been used for the great things that he was. And so, that both Jake, Jacob, um, both jo Judah and Joseph have these like momentous reinterpretations of the things that happened to him. Hmm. In one case, it's like they, you know, just didn't really have anything to do with what happened to him. And in the case of Judah, he did something that could have defined him, but he didn't let it, and he, he rectified. And I think that's, a, that's an important point. I don't mean to jump in real quick, but just to say, you men righteous people, and 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 righteous people do things. We don't just feel bad. We don't just pray things. Righteous people do things. And Judah recognized he needed to do something, and he did it. Reuben, on the other hand, in our, in this example, offers you know his own sons. But Judah made it clear to Jacob, "You got me. I will give you myself. I will be responsible, big time, hundred percent." And I I wonder if you know as as Gentiles, the Ten Commandments kind of have that "Thou shalt not steal" thing in there. Um, but the Jews don't. They, they, that's a kidnapping deal, you know? Mm. And this is almost a kidnapping scenario mm. in my mind. And Actually, it, it probably fits the box pretty well because yeah. I think technically the capital offense of kidnapping has to do with selling into slavery. Like yeah. it's so this is a big deal. It's huge. And Judah makes it right. And that's what I'm saying. Like to me... This moment um, in the scriptures, in terms of like its its allegorical impact, in terms of like what it symbolically means, is probably one of the most important up to the time because this is what repentance looks like. You know, up until now you have examples of repentance, but they're kind of oblique. You know, it's like this person wasn't doing so well and they changed, and now they're okay or whatever. Um, but this is Judah, like one, like completely undoing what he did before and that and when he talks about you know like um that with forgiveness there you can erase a multitude of sins that whole idea it's like it feels it doesn't 
it doesn't always feel that way. And one of the things that like the the um, uh, Rebbe Nachman followers are all really big in as lovers is that the importance of not feeling depressed about yourself. Like they say, like, ideally, Rebbe Nachman teaches like ideally, you should be able to realize how awesome God is and how pathetic you are all the time. That'd be perfect. But unfortunately, that's probably going to make you be completely depressed and useless. So because humans can't handle that emotionally, the next best thing is to basically think as positively about yourself as possible. Not to be arrogant, but simply like, like if you do something wrong, like to kind of try to get over it, like to not, not get sucked into, because he said the danger is, is despair. He's like, the worst thing you can do is despair. Because as soon as you start to think to yourself, I am a wicked person. I am defined by what I did yesterday. That is who I am, and I can't change that. You won't. And so the idea is to see yourself as, um, as a good person, as someone who can be better, who can, who can triumph over evil. Um, the, uh, and that, and then, so that's why he's like, they're, 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 he's like, it doesn't matter what it is. Like, you got to go, go find that one mitzvah you did yesterday. You just grab onto that and make that who you are. And that, I think that that's kind of what Judah is offering, this hope here, to say, like, that can be you. You can be different. You don't have to be who you've been up until now. And I think that is just so, such a huge lesson, a beautiful lesson. It takes me back to Yeshua's words, you know, um, you know, the, that the angels rejoice when one person comes back, you know, I was like looking for the, the coins, right? You no, know, and I have a hundred sheep and I go find one sheep and they're rejoicing more of them. Like the, when a wicked person, when a, when, a, when a sinner repents, then this is a huge moment. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a spiritually significant event. It's not just that someone finally figured it out. It's that they actually had a chance to um, effectively undo that they've done before, um, and that's enormous, and that's just, and that's just beautiful to see you to do that. The other thing here too um, is uh, as we go through, so at this huge emotional moment, um, Joseph and the brothers are leaving. As you're saying, they're all upset. Joseph makes it very clear that he's one of them, which is also, I think, a really cool thing about Messiah. I think Messiah is going to make it very clear he's one of them. Um, that's going to be a little confusing for some of the the Christian side of the aisle. <laughs> uh, they'll figure it out pretty quickly. Um, but then, uh, and then they come back and they, they send the, the stuff to Jacob and they, they want Jacob to be able to come, uh, to come down to Egypt. Uh, and one of the things, um, that I hadn't really thought of, and we can bounce around anywhere in the portion. Um, so one of the things I hadn't really thought of, uh, that Yishai Fletcher pointed out is that Jacob, Jacob needs help to go to Egypt because Jacob has got to be thinking to himself, what, they sent a wagon full of food to me just now. Can we just do that? Like, why do I have to leave Israel? Um, I, I can get on right the current plan to right. get a wagon every yeah, day. Right, exactly, right. If, yeah, that's exactly right. It's like, you know, Wall Street Journal can ship me wine, so, you know, I need to get... It shouldn't the, be a problem. Right, it should be okay. Um, and uh, and so, like, Jacob's struggling because... So it says he, uh, he, in Ishai Fleischer's comments on his podcast this week, he was talking about, like, he goes down to Beersheba. It's the, it's the home of Isaac. Isaac is important because Isaac never leaves the land of Israel. Isaac, tradition holds, well, the reason for that is because Isaac is put in the offering, on the altar, so therefore he's like an offering, he's holy, he's sanctified, he can't leave. Um, another way to look at it is that Jews really shouldn't leave if they don't have to. That's another way to see it. It's so, also that Isaac is a picture of Messiah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. And, all, and you could even say, Jews shouldn't leave unless God tells them. <laughs> it also works. Mm-hmm. I like that too. So, so as right, as although, right, although Yeshua yeah. left the land of Israel. He did. Yeah. No, I'm not saying you, they shouldn't. I'm just saying there's a lot of different explanations as to why Isaac stays. And why Jacob is feeling badly about, about leaving. And Jacob's that little uncertain. Like, I don't know, you know, like, do I have to? Why do I have to? Like, so he goes to Beersheba and it specifically says he prays to the God of his father. And that's the commentators note that. Like, that stands out. Like, that's weird. Why not pray to the God of Abraham? I mean, Abraham was the first one, you know, wouldn't be more sense to be like, we're going to go to the source, but instead it says he prays to the God of his father, Isaac, and God speaks to, to Jacob and specifically says, don't worry, this is me paraphrasing, don't worry, you go to Egypt, I will go with you, and I will bring you back, and that, the, the sages teach that that's, uh, Rashi's talking about this, I believe it is, is saying that, like, that's how Jacob, that's why Jacob insists on being buried in the Holy Land. Like, he gets promised by God. God said, I'm going to bring you back to the land of Israel. Jacob says, that means me, like physically me. I am coming back. Um, and uh, so I think it's so cool how God, like, like God has to speak to him. Uh, and one, I think it's impressive that Jacob takes this so seriously. It's not like slam dunk. Jo- my son Joseph, my long lost son Joseph's in Egypt. Of course we're going to Egypt. Let's go as fast as we can. You brought wagons? I've got a steed. You know, that kind of thing. Instead, um, Jacob's grudging. He's not sure if this is the best thing because he wants to do what's right even though he really wants to see his son again, even though he's worried about the famine. It's like, but God, is it okay? And, and God tells him, it's fine. Well, it seems like to me, since Abraham was a wanderer, but he was given the promise that his children would be as the stars in the sky and the sand upon the shore. And so then I just kind of set up that okay, this is our land, this is our place, this is where we're going to be. Jacob brings his sons back to there once he has his all of his sons. So I kind of see that it's okay, you know, I'm the one that's carrying through this promise that was given to Abraham. I'm the one that has to stay here. If I take all my family away from here, mm-hmm. what happens to that promise? Right. Mm-hmm. What happens to that promise that this is your land, this is where you'll grow and develop, so if I go all the way to Egypt, assimilation, all the things that mm-hmm. you worry about. So I, I think he wanted to know, is this okay? If I take them and, and hearing, yes, I will bring you back, mm-hmm. was, was his affirmation that the promise to Abraham and to my father Isaac is still true. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That's very good. Um, but I just think it's so cool that that, that, that matters, Jacob. Like I said, how about earlier? Like the what, what's the righteous man's probably biggest threat is the easy way out. Let's not do the right thing. Let's just do what's easy. And I think that that I mean, Jacob, this, this is a, practically speaking, this is so easy. It's not even have to think about it. But because Jacob is such a righteous man, he's so serious about God's will. He has to talk to God first. Like he has to make sure this is okay before he does something that everybody else is like, oh, of course you do that. <laughs> Your long-lost son is living in Egypt. He's the king. He's the practically the king of Egypt, and they're the only ones who have food. Like, why are we even asking? But that Jacob, that he's different. That he's seeing things on different levels. It's like just the physical is not enough. Of course, he gets there, and then it's a, again the other tradition. So he gets there, and it says that Joseph wept on his neck. And the, the sages point out, like we're missing half the story here. It takes two to tango. It takes two to hug. Where's the part where it says, and Jacob wept on his neck? Like, that's missing. And so they just, because they, um, uh, they, they view this as saying that in that moment, Jacob was saying Shema. Which, at first, the first time I read that, I was like, 
So is this just supposed to be like, yes, he's super holy in his spare time. He, you know, studies Talmud and um, he uh, you know, only eats on Saturdays because that's Shabbat. You know, I'm like, what, what's the reason for that? And then later read on, it's like, okay, the commentation, the reason for saying that um, uh, is that he wanted to channel that moment into service of God. Mm-hmm. He was so overwhelmed by meeting Joseph again. He wanted all that beautiful emotion go into an act of worship, um, which I thought was so cool. And uh, in in um, and it's kind of like you know, I recently got a new pair of jeans, which I love. Oh. And um, and I got them uh, uh, during Hanukkah for my parents. They gave them to me um, last weekend and or before that. And I, I specifically like waited till Shabbat to wear them because I really wanted to get a chance to wear them on Shabbat. And the reason is this idea. It's this idea of like I want my joy and my excitement to get channeled into something good. Now, of course, I don't I don't do this all the time with all of the you know I'm not as cool as Pretty awesome much. as Jacob. But um, but clothes clothes are easy. That makes it easy. But it's like um, I remember reading a book from um, what was that one from Peter? Do you remember the name of that one? The weird the, it's the brown book. I can't remember the name of the book right now. Uh, unfortunately, there's a cool little book. I haven't read the whole thing, but I was reading part of it, and it was talking about like looking forward to Shabbat, like sanctifying Shabbat. Making Shabbat delight, and how it's like you should start like on Monday, making Shabbat delight. Be planning how great Shabbat's going to be. Thinking about ways you can make Shabbat exciting and happy, and like it should carry you through the week rather than being like, um, well, now that it's Saturday, what am I going to have for breakfast? I guess I'll just find something, you know. But like almost like on Tuesday, it's like we're going to make sure we take this out and set it aside. We want to, you know, make Shabbat special. You know, we're making, we get this bottle of wine or, you know, whatever it might be. And it's like, and, that, and so I'm just saying that that's basically what Jacob's doing here on like an extreme level. He's taking that emotion, that joy of meeting Joseph. He's channeling it towards Hashem. And it's like, um, if we could find a way to do that on a daily basis, more than just with, with Shabbat, but with so many other things. Like when you're eating a meal, that, that thankfulness to God for Berkat HaMazon or that blessing to God before you eat, if you were taking that joy and excitement of that food, and directing it towards God, that, that that's the idea of what Jacob does here. He actually did that a few weeks ago with Eva. And so so and and in that expression, I mean, because we were all very thankful, obviously y'all are more, but because we were also very thankful, it was something we knew we had to memorialize with thanks to God. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And, and we do it a lot of times. Anytime we say Baruch Hashem, and anytime we are thankful because something wonderful happened, you know, we are ex- we're doing the same thing. We're we're saying that this moment is is special and it's special because God's connected to it. Right, right, right. And and recognizing that connection as being something special. And that's why like if you go to the towards the back well, the end of your weekday prayers in your litter, you have this long list of all these blessings. And it's like blessings for a ton of different things. You get you can get books that have like literally like um, dozens of blessings for stuff. Blessings for new clothes, blessings for seeing thunder and lightning, blessings or seeing lightning. Blessings for seeing 200,000 Jews and or 100,000 Jews in one place. Blessings for seeing an especially beautiful person. Blessings for seeing an especially ugly person. All of these different types of things. Because the Jews recognize, like, it's all from God. Like, should we should, like, take every moment we can to, like, express that to God. And, you know, it's like, so things like wearing new pants, you know, Baruch Hashem, that God gave me that opportunity and, you know, and the ability, whatever else to do and that. And your brother. And, 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 the, and the pants from my parents. Then the money to buy them. Um, and it's like, but that should be, like, in Judaism, that should be normal. Like, that shouldn't be something where it's like, I can highlight this because this was special. It's almost like, was that all you did? 
the whole weed buy and you only did one thing that you like specifically attached God to your to your weed. Like you should be fighting that should be happening all the time. Um, and that's like that's actually like, kind of the goal. Anyway, I just think about like Jacob doing that and it um it's just I do really it every inspiring. day. I get a picture from Juliana of my grandson it's like that's it. Right? <laughs> Top <laughs> shelf. It's really nice. great. Easy nice. to praise God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yes, yeah. sir. <laughs> Alright, so every year this one throws me. This is the first year I've ridden the goop neck. It's a little bit different, perhaps. Explains a couple things, but I'm just thinking, okay, I've actually experienced, describing Jacob now, not me. Oh, okay. Although in some cases, it's Pharaoh. So, I've actually wrestled with God. Spoke okay. to him a couple of times. Actually, it was a one-way conversation. And he made it clear that, you know, that my father is blah, blah, blah. I'm going to get the land. It's a great thing. Got you. Not that hairy guy brother you got. Mm. Going to leave. Got a girl. Got another girl. Wow. You got like, 12 kids. 12 boys. 13 kids. 13 kids. <laughs> right. 13 kids, 12 boys, and one girl. Personally, I'm a, I'm a girl man myself. <laughs> Anyway. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Someone's got to balance it. That's right. So, I, I've always been surprised, at least in the New American Standard or the English Standard, with, uh, hi, Pharaoh, this is my dad. Right. How, how old are you? I'm pretty darn old, and it's been crummy all my life. <laughs> it's basically the way the English Standard was. You know, you know, that's, that doesn't seem consistent. So I, I just like to read what the Gutnik says on that conversation and get everybody's take on why it makes sense or why it doesn't make sense. Pharaoh says to Yaakov, how many years have you been alive? Yaakov said to Pharaoh, I mean, by the way, 47, 8. Yaakov said to Pharaoh, it's page 333 if you got a Bible like mine. Yaakov said to Pharaoh, I've been wandering around for 130 years. Compared to my father's lifetimes, when they were wandering around, the days of my life have been few and miserable. Even ignoring the miseries that I've had, my days have not been as good as theirs. Well, that sounds pretty dismal. Yaakov blessed Pharaoh that the Nile should irrigate the land, which is great in the time of famine, and he left Pharaoh's presence. Now I'm just curious why Jacob would summarize his life that way. And just to kick this conversation off, as a dad, I can imagine that if your life included the experience of your daughter being raped, your sons committing murder, and another son being kidnapped or killed, and your wife dying during childbirth, you'd probably want to class your life in a way that was 
somewhat less than pleasant. Jacob's a struggler. And and as yeah, I mean that's right, that's what his his name is all about, right? But I guess this year I'm looking at it and going, I praise God. I got a lot of kids, I got a heck of a lot of grandkids, and I haven't experienced any of that. Baruch Hashem. And Bezrat Hashem. It won't happen. It won't, none of that will happen. Um, so I get it. Maybe there's a little bitterness, and maybe there's a little introspection going on. Maybe there's a little bit of honesty coming out. I don't know. But. I, th- I think, let me just tee it up with this. I'm just a little surprised. Even, I think, if some of those or all of those things had happened to me, and I found out that the, that the, the one kid, which again is a, is, is a problem for me, to, 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 to single out one child and say, this is my favorite. I've never done it. I would never do I have a favorite right now. It's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so to, 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 even if all this happened, to find out that that favorite son was actually alive, and not only that, but didn't finish college, and ended up being in charge of the entire planet. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and that his boss wanted to provide free passage Intercontinentally, no, inter. That's true. You're inter. Right. What's intercountry? That was internationally, but that is internationally intercontinental because this Egypt is, is in Africa. This right. is pretty, pretty big. Right? I would have, I would have probably toned down the negative side. But see, think about from J- J- Jacob's perspective. So I think that two things. Number one, Jacob, according to tradition, and this is really ironic because of the way the Christians view him, Judaism sees Jacob as an incredibly honest person. They say that his deception of his father, Isaac, in the we read about earlier, was extremely difficult for him. And the only reason he did it is because his mom told him to. That's just not who he is. And I think if you get, you kind of get that feel, there's a lot of times where he's pretty brutally honest. I can work with that. Um, and I think that part of that is, if you read it, um, Yishai Fleischer translated Pharaoh's comment. Pharaoh's not saying, notice what's missing in this story? Like, Pharaoh doesn't go, hey, Jacob, so good to have you here, so... How was it like coming from Canaan? Or you got twelve sons? That's pretty cool. And I got two of my. Instead, he's like, "Dude, you're really old." <laughs> like that's a really odd way to start. And it's obvious to me, and and, and what the sage commentaries are saying is that he's looking at Jacob. He's going, "You look too old. Like what happened in your life that mm-hmm. made you age so fast?" Yes, Mister Wrinkleface is coming into the presence of the Pharaoh. Right. Like what? Like you look like you've been through a lot. Like what happened? And Jacob's response. I think is honesty, number one. Number two, Jacob, I said, he's a struggler. Because he is, in Judaism, they see, like, okay, so Abraham is, like, the friend of God. And Isaac is, like, the, the holy, you know, sacrifice to God. Jacob is the everyman. Jacob is a normal guy. He's going through life. Life stinks, but he loves God anyway. He's trying to make the best of it. And hard. And Jacob is the normal, everyday Jew whose life is just hard. And, and they there's multiple times, it's, it, a little while earlier, we have this surpassed starts, and Jacob dwelled in the land, and then Joseph gets sold into slavery. And the commentators say that Jacob finally is like, oh, thank goodness, like, we can finally settle down, you know, whatever happened with Dina is over with, the Canaanites didn't decide to come and kill me after we wiped out Shechem, you know, it's going to be okay. Whew, okay, I can finally rest. And traditionally, the commentators say God 
Beast's comment is effectively like, rest now. Look, you get the world to come, Jacob, but right now you still got to struggle. And, and that is, I think that's just Jacob honestly recognizing that, that like my life's been hard. I think what's important is that Jacob's not defeated by that. You know, Jacob may be recognizing that that to be true. And again, I think it is kind of really negative. It does feel that way. And some of the commentators ding him for that. Like, whoa, like that was totally like way too strong. But he, I think the important thing is he does represent, I mean, think about the Jewish history is awful. I mean, Jacob's story, you, you were thanking God that it's nothing like yours. But there are literally thousands of Jews' stories look very much like this. Mm -hmm. Who have horrific things happen to them it feels like their whole lives and they get it, somehow they still manage to live long um but jacob's never defeated and jacob ends his life on a good note and, and jacob ends his life by by being by blessing all of his sons and setting the stage for them to be the, the people of israel and i think that's really like the point of jacob it's not joseph is the one who conquers circumstances that's not jacob's job like it, jacob's character Jacob's character is the one who perseveres. He endures. Um, yes, sir. Well, I think it's missing is the is is the Semitic, you know, maybe the, maybe just the ancient perception on age, and the the and and actually, if you read what it says, he says few. The word few is important in the understanding of mm -hmm. what he means. Someone who lives a long life has has bank. They have value, and. His response is a matter of response of humility. Mm -hmm. So Jacob's, so you're an old guy. You know, this is, I mean, obviously you're you're wealthy in age. And his response is, I'm actually very poor in age. My days have been few. They've been hard. They've been bad. I have no bank. My father's, on the other hand, had it. And then his response then to Pharaoh is he blesses Pharaoh. See, I think that's what's missing is, in the descriptions is, that it is out of what he has just said that he blesses Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. So he's he's speaking from a perspective of humility. I I basically I don't deserve anything. I've, whatever I've been given, it's nothing compared to what my my father's achieved. Uh, but then he gives out of that humility, he blesses Pharaoh, which is I mean, which is like the ultimate. I mean, if you think about it, the greater always blesses the lesser. True. Joseph immediately starts off by saying, "I'm the lesser," and then blesses Pharaoh. Jacob. Jacob, Jacob. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Jacob immediately starts off by explaining that he's the lesser and then blesses Pharaoh. So I don't think that he's I don't think that he's negative at all. Hmm, and if point. you think about and you think about every time we start, every time we talk about a Holocaust survivor, what do we say that you know they died? They were 105. Wow, they were the Holocaust. Wow. It's like why are you saying wow? Aren't you saying whoa? What an awful life. You're not saying that. Right. You're saying they lived that long and they're Holocaust survivors. What an incredible blessing. We bless God for such things. It's the same thing. Joseph. Joseph's a man of humility here. Or Joseph. Jacob is a man of humility here. They, commentators say they look identical, so they can understand the confusion. On the other hand, when I get older, it depresses me, but not because I've had a hard life, but because I had a good life and I don't want it to finish. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, I think like that. Me neither. Um, that... that uh, Jacob, that's a good way to look at it. He's looking at humility. It kind of reminds me of the brothers later. Joseph tells the brothers, so we're going to go before Pharaoh. Tell them you're like sheep keepers because they hate sheep keepers. Mm -hmm. The last thing you want to get done is be drafted into like the military because that would not be good. So let's make sure we keep ourselves hide segregated. Right, hide the chest. Talking point. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely get drafted into the army. Right, exactly. <laughs> 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 um, 
So then he, you see a lot of it in Jerusalem today. Yeah, <laughs> that's true actually. But they, they teach they, te- they teach that uh, they actually teach one one tradition is that J- Joseph brings the weakest brothers with him specifically so they right. won't get like you know get drafted. Judah, you stay home. Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, the idea being that's that true. yeah he um that maybe that's something that you're trying to do here too that he's realizing like this is kind of an important moment like if i seem too impressive maybe pharaoh will want to exactly. name me his advisor and it's like i don't want any part of that it's like my life's not been that great but let me bless you and it moves on the other tradition uh e. Fleischer pointed out is that um jews had this idea it's kind of weird the whole evil eye thing the idea is not necessarily a bad one though they say that like you don't want people to be jealous of you when people are jealous of you, right. that is that there's like a negative spiritual energy around that. So Jacob, so Jacob's kind of like downplaying his life because he doesn't want Pharaoh to be like, "Whoa, your son is like number two in this country. You've got twelve sons. You've got a thousand grandkids. I mean, holy cow, you brought a whole country with you." You know, like basically this whole that feeling. And instead, um, We're Jacob's out of like, wagons, guy. "I know." Right? Jacob's like, "Yeah, life hasn't been all that great." Before we, we talk anymore, let me just give you a blessing. Let's go home. Speaking of which, the blessing. So, tradition holds the, the famine ends when Jacob blesses Pharaoh. This is interesting because it seems like, well, that's so odd. Like, Joseph promised seven years of famine. It should be seven years of famine. Two things. Number one, God. Is it short for the sake of the elect? It, that, that's where I was going. Look at my I didn't. We didn't practice this in advance. That was totally just a mind blowing moment. Um, but that whole thing is that exactly right. That repeatedly in Scripture, you see God, the one time where God looks like he's going against his word, so to speak, changes the plan, so to speak, is in mercy. Over and over and over again, you know, he, tell, he doesn't tell Jonah to go to Nineveh and say, if you don't repent, you're going to get wiped out. He tells him to go to Nineveh and say, you're going to get wiped out. They repent, and God doesn't. Over and over and over again, God threatens something that then doesn't happen if the people repent. So in this case, excuse me, God cuts short because of the elect. Jacob comes in, the people of Israel show up, they're in the land of Egypt, and they say, and Jacob blesses Pharaoh, and God ends the famine. Now, the, the, the thing, I didn't notice until this year, but the commentators point out that the proof of this is when Joseph's negotiating at the end of the parasha with all the people, and they take your livestock for some grain, for food, and okay, now we'll take your land for food, at the end of it, he says, and he gives them seed for sowing. The commentators go, that's stupid if they're still in the midst of a famine in which you can't see or harvest, which is what he said earlier. But it makes total sense if the famine had ended. So they say that was year number two. Year two, it, Jacob gets there, he blesses Pharaoh, it's over. Like, that's pretty cool. Very cool. And Pharaoh owns the land. Pharaoh owns land. And, um, the, people. and the people. Which, by the but way, just kind of, yeah. go ahead. No, I, I just thought that was always interesting, too, when I was thinking about, like, you know, we were just doing that with the kids, and you would think that at some point, you know, there, you'd run into that whole, like, there's going to be poor in the land, and, you know, when you want to want to feed your, your brother, right? Like, you would think that would come into play, but it, it doesn't at all. It's always, like, an economic thing. It's like, oh, okay, you're out of animals? All right, land. All right, you're out of land? All right, you. <laughs> I mean, it's always like, you're always going to pay for the food. I thought that was kind of an interesting, I don't really know what the explanation of that is, but besides the fact that I think, you know, yeah, he ends up with everything and then gives it to Pharaoh, which was significant, but 
It was interesting that it was never given away, at least it wasn't described as such. Right. You know, like, oh my goodness, you're about to die. They actually say that. We're dying. Like, still. Joseph was definitely the the first capitalist. He was definitely not a. Yeah, there was a book written, Wealth of Nations came straight from this. (laughs) (laughs) Joseph was definitely not a a socialist or a communist. There was no welfare program here. Um, Actually, he's very loyal to his employer. And, that, and that's, I was going to say, it's interesting you say this, because there's two views on Joseph and his, his actions. Some say he's un, it's, it's, un, it's uncompassionate, uh, is that the word? Unmerciful and, uh, and, str- and harsh. Some say, uh, uh, they, there's some justification there. I think that when you look at the Torah's view on charity and the, and the apostolic scripture's view on charity, there's the reason for this. The Torah, interestingly enough, um, has an entire system set up for indentured servitude. Why would we have that? Because some people go into debt and they cannot pay. And, so, and so instead, what happens is they give up their land, just like in this case. The difference is God owns the land. So God says you can only give it up for X number of years, and then it goes back to the original owner. But the principle is that you have to earn what you get. Now, if you have nothing to give, then it's free. And that's the and but notice interesting throughout the, the discussions of charity in, in the Torah. I'm not saying that giving money away is a bad thing. I think it's a very good thing. But in the Torah descriptions, it's always treated as a loan. I'm going to give you money, and then if you can pay me back before the seven years are up, great. If you can't, I'll wash my hands of it, and it's, and it's a gift. But that's the, the, that's the difference. In, it, and it reminds me of the Apostolic Scriptures where, where um, I think it's is it Peter? He's not, if he doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And that idea that, like, we live in a society today where there is an expectation that everyone gets a baseline lifestyle. Everyone should be able, should be handed, you know, something good. We've made a mistake because they exist. The internet's a right. We've made a mistake in thinking that our constitution says, or a declaration of independence says, that we have a right to happiness. Right. We have a right. To, to pursue, pursue happiness. happiness. Yes, it's very true. And so I think that the Bible's perspective on this, I feel like, this is to justify Joseph to some degree, is to say, I feel like the biblical view of this is almost like, I will take care of my poor brother at great cost to myself, but only when we've established that they need that. I'm not going to um, simply get them an excuse to be lazy. Does that take or to give them, or to give them anything less than it's, the it's not loving than the respect that they are capable of taking care of I mean, themselves, I mean. and that is the difference I think in in the sort of the Jewish chair, the the Torah based charity model. Jews today give money away all the time, completely free all the time. You walk into Jerusalem, there are beggars all over the place, and people are handing away coins and not asking for loans. So I think that is beautiful. I think that's godly. I don't think it's a problem. All I'm saying is, I think that's going up beyond the Torah requirement. The minimum Torah requirement is make sure that the, that no one, you know, no one, uh, no Star- one's dying starving. Yeah. But if they can pay for themselves, they should. So, just a perspective on timing, because Janet mentioned, you know, uh, earlier that there's probably a couple of years had gone by in in this story, mm-hmm. uh, going up, coming back, and you know, all that kind of stuff. I agree with that completely. Um, when we look at the sabbatical year and this seven-year cycle and so forth, we praise God because he gives us uh, 
the crops from the sixth year feed us in the seventh year. What feeds us in the eighth year? God. Because he doubled what we would have, right? And then we've got the planting in the seventh year that would give us the eighth year. You got three years worth of stuff that's handled over overall in that whole sabbatical cycle. And I, and I kind of see that here, to your point. It may be that it stopped and Jacob prayed. It could be that it was about to stop anyway, not unlike when mm -hmm. Daniel was praying. Um, right. But when, do, if you know that there's going to be a number of years of famine, when do you plant? You plant, just like in the sabbatical year, in that last year, for the next year. And mm, okay. it, I can see this okay. mathematically working out well, that he's given that seed, so that when the famine's over here, right. we're, we're, you know, it's, it's going to start to grow. So at the end of that famine cycle, you've, you've got seed being sown for food for the people. Okay, I can it's, see that. I can see it's that. Just view. to parallel with that mm -hmm. is, uh, is, is beautiful. Right? And Joseph, I think the one thing about Joseph that's a little bit harsh here is the permanency of the cell plan. And I think, that the, I think the point of Joseph's story, I think, to me, is not really... Scripture doesn't say, right or wrong. doesn't say. What I think is interesting about it, though, is the, is the consequence. And this is what I think you should remember. When you make decisions, you have no idea where they will go. And Joseph basically sets the stage for the entire book of Exodus right here. Number one, Ishai Fleischer points out in his commentary this week talking about it. Number one, he gets them all into serfdom. There's a slavery, slave state system now. Interestingly enough, how do the Egyptians decide to solve the Jewish problem? This apparently is a question that's been, pagans have been dealing for a long time. Solve the Jewish question? Slavery. That's their answer. Number two, it says that he moves them around to all these different cities all over, all over the, the land. The commentators say this was done to help deal with his, uh, Rashi's saying it's done to help deal, help his, his own people feel more at ease in the country, his own family, because they're like exiles, but now everybody's in exile. But another way to look at it that's interesting is after he, he scatters them all over, right, and he moves, he intentionally moves them from different cities to, to disconnect them from the land that now belongs to Pharaoh, according to the commentator. Then, during the slavery time in Exodus, it says that Pharaoh says, you won't have any straw. It says they were scattered all over the land. Um, the priesthood is given their own little segregated special allotment by Pharaoh. So they don't suffer any of the consequences in this whole deal. And interestingly enough, um, in God's perspective, the priesthood is segregated, ironically enough, in reverse. All their stuff basically owns to God. But they're given special treatment as well, as mentioned in the, in the Jubilee year, in the seventh year, and whatnot. They get things to come back to them that other people don't get. There's like benefits to being a priest. Lastly, Jacob, or Joseph, excuse me, I'm doing it too. Yeah. Um, Joseph says, uh, that, that says okay, all, you know, even though the land belongs to Pharaoh, you can keep almost all of it. All you got to do is give 20% to Pharaoh. Those of us in the Christian church might not recognize that percentage, so, um, but the percentage is important because in the Torah, charity was not 10%. Charity was 20%. 10% is set aside for God, slash sort of the priesthood, 10% is set aside in kind of a rotating uh, allotment. Some of it goes towards... That's one-fifth if you're into the fraction. Right. Wow. So 10% and 10%, now you got 20%. And each year, so that 
even in the years where you gave an extra 10% for the poor, I think it replaces one of the other ones according to the, like the tradition. So basically, you're always giving up 20% of your income, so to speak, your wealth, for uh, your, your farming wealth um, to God or to, you know, in honor of God, however. So basically, Joseph, whether he intended it or not, essentially institutes... Not, in addition to the indentured servitude thing, which goes back to what we talked about earlier, right? Essentially institutes the Jewish economic system and the slavery of his own people. So, like, the entire book of Exodus from an economic perspective is Joseph. It's his vision carried out, sometimes distorted, sometimes, you know, um, magnified in a beautiful way. But either way, it's like he basically sets the entire standard for how economics are going to work for the entire book of Exodus. That's pretty cool and kind of scary all at the same time. I would go further and say that Joseph as a picture of Messiah is, is teaching the people that it's, it's God, Pharaoh in that case, Hashem in this case, that owns all the land. Okay. You need to recognize he owns all the land. And if I scatter you all around, I'm still going to bring you back how do Gentiles end up with land in yeah, God owns the land. If all of Israel has already been portioned out to the tribes, right? Same kind of deal. Where I see a picture hmm, okay. of what will happen past Exodus and, you know, well, all the generation. Well, and they cheat. It's interesting you say that because I, I'm thinking about it as you're talking about it, that like, this would have also made God's commandments make so much sense. Yeah. Like, so people of Israel, when God says, I own the land, they're well, like, sure. well, of course, of course you Pharaoh owns this land, God owns that land. That makes sense to me. Right. Um, and the whole, all these instructions from God, rather than being like, like yeah, exactly. oh my goodness, we have to do what? It's a parallel. Right. It's like, oh, I've already seen that system. This one actually looks better. Exactly. But it's very similar, so I know what I'm talking about. A corporate income tax of 20%. We've seen that before. <laughs> Wait, we actually took 21%. Ooh, rats were they, a percent they, over. They, Although they, there's a 20% pass-through for sole proprietors. Which, there we go. There you go. <laughs> the point Instead of being taxed at my rate, I get to go at 20%. That's a pretty good deal. So the uh, there we go. That's right. That's right. So that's, um, but that's the, the idea. They also teach that Moses institutes the Sabbath as a, as a rest day um, on for the slaves when he was prince of Egypt. So um, it's almost like throughout, and if you notice that, when you get to the Shabbat discussion, the Jewish people aren't confused as to what it is. In fact, the leaders are a little freaked out. They're like, I thought you said we shouldn't be collecting extra manna, and Moses is like, no, this is right. They, supposed to, they can't collect on Shabbat, so they should take extra on Friday. And that was like, but the people kind of figured it out on their own, which is sort of weird, because they knew Shabbat. Shabbat wasn't new to them. And I kind of get that, you get that feeling like God has is using these geopolitical characters, really. I mean, these are huge... Na nation-forming events to introduce his, to introduce the Torah to start preparing his people for what a Torah is going to look like. Because if you think about it, we are transitioning from twelve brothers and one like barely mentioned sister to a nation yeah. of millions of people. Like it's a huge change that has to take place, and to make it even harder, that nation is going to come out of slavery. So like they like realistically they should have no way of being able to set up their own government, to set up their own societal system, their own economic system. Like that should be completely out of their minds. Like they're just thrilled that I mean the, the Trinity so often in modern society in these countries that were colonized and whatever else, and the colonists left 
and they said, okay, fine, you can have it, you can do whatever you want with it, and they ended up turning into, like, horrific infighting and crazy civil wars and economic disparity, like, no one can ever, disease and all that, because they, they, they were never trained how to build a nation. They don't know what it means to have a nation, and that's kind of what, really, where the people of Israel should have been, but instead, because maybe it was Joseph, who knows, Joseph and his wisdom, God in his wisdom, using Joseph, has put such a, a well-designed infrastructure in society in place in Egypt that when he takes them out of Egypt, he says, okay, remember what you saw before? We're doing something very similar. It's going to be a little bit better. I'm going to be in charge this time. And you guys aren't going to be slaves anymore. But it's going to look a lot alike. And I think that that really works for them. Yeah, well, and it, the, that, that's magic. Pharaoh is, is like God to you. you know, hmm. it's, these phrases are there. So. Well, also, that new wealth. I mean, they're going to have the wealth of Egypt with them. Right. And like we see with so many people who, uh, nouveau riche, the uh, lottery winners essentially ruined their lives. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they now had a system that actually could handle the wealth. Right. Yeah. They were slaves, and suddenly they owned all of Egypt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, this, that's really cool. There's a commentator that says that the pharaoh... Um, rather inadvertently. He says, give them the best of the land, and they say, well, this is really a prophecy. He didn't realize it, but... <laughs> Got it. Done. It's, it's also just that small point of just kind of thinking about how God used the nations to bring about the salvation of, like, pretty much the, the Jewish people in this case. You know, with... You, I mean, it could have been that the most fertile of the land or where they collected all this stuff was back in Israel, but it was in Egypt. Uh. Right. That was that was right. ended up being the source of, of like the sustenance for all of Israel mm -hmm. at the time was through Egypt. And then it's the lessons learned in Egypt that they're able to use when they come back to Israel. And I think this is really Yishai Fleischer mentioned this and the idea is that the people were blessed when they come to Egypt. They multiplied exceedingly. It's at the end of this week's Torah portion. And that's kinda of like well that seems weird. They're not in Israel. Like why would they get blessed outside the land of Israel? And and Yishai Fleischer just says like this is an exile time. They're in Egypt this is this is an exile. But the Jewish people can be blessed in exile. And you really think about it, what you're talking about, exactly what we saw over the last 2,000 years. As awful as the Roman exile has been, the Jewish people were, were prepared tremendously for where they are now. Thinking about wealth, instead of physical wealth, and spiritual wealth. I mean, basically, like, the entire physical, religious Russia. system was set up in exile. Like, all of the rabbis, all of the Talmud, all of the... Um, the teachings and the traditions, the, the, the Hasidic movement that brought emotion back into it again, like all of these different types of religious things that make Jewish people who they are today, really, happened in exile. It didn't happen when they came back to the land of Israel. The land of Israel actually hasn't, it's funny because the land of Israel recreation was a religious um, earthquake for Christians, but for Jews, it didn't really change anything. It was like, well, now we have to do it here. That's cool. Like it wasn't a, it wasn't the same because they need it. They had been, they had, they had, they had sown in exile, and they had reaped in exile. When they came to the land of Israel, it wasn't. They weren't starting over, and um, and it's kind of the same thing even from like a from wealth and other perspectives. Like Jews now are coming into Israel from all over the planet, and they're bringing. Education. They're bringing uh, experiences. They're bringing money that they've earned. They're bringing history and <laughs> legacy and all these different types of things. I mean, the irony is, if you think about it, like um, you know, there was a joke in the Cold War days. Um, the Americans and the Russians really weren't that smart. What happened after World War II ended? We all invaded Russia, got our own half of Russia, 
And the joke uh, in our missile programs, in our space programs, was our Germans are better than your Germans. Mm. Like, the ones who are really smart, really what the, how to, you know, get something from this planet into our atmosphere were the Germans. So the Russians and the Americans were, were having a space race, but they were actually, the Germans were really the ones powering the programs. So it's kind of like the same thing. So in Israel, you're literally bringing the wealth of nations from an intellectual, from an experiential, from a cultural, from all of those perspectives into this tiny little country the size of New Jersey. It somehow is an economic powerhouse that survived the 2008 crash better than just about any other developed nation that is changing the planet from a technological perspective. They're the ones exporting things to Europe. They're the ones who are helping Africa keep from falling into devastating drought. You know, they're the ones who are developing technology. Google's building their car plant in Israel. Why? Because that's a good place to do it. You know, it's like they, their, their impact is exponentially disproportionate to their size. Always has been. But to your point, I think what we're talking about here is because God's blessed them. But it's also because God blessed them in exile. They brought that exile experience with them and they able to use it. I think that's encouraging to us because we're in exile, really. And we're experiencing that today. And it's like, it's so easy. Going back to what I talked about earlier, it's like so easy to suck into that despair. Like, why, why even try to keep kosher? Why even try to keep Shabbat? We're in exile. Instead, taking exile is like, this is an opportunity. Like, we can do better. We can be as best as we can be here. And because we're preparing for our time in the land, Messiah comes back, we want to be ready. It's like, it's like the guy with the talent, right? We can, we can just say, or oh, in exile, boom. You know, we're going to stay here on this spot and not move. Or we can be the guys who are going, you know, it doesn't work. I'm going to put this money in investment. I'm going, to, I'm going to do something with this for the next however many years until my master comes back. And then, and then we're going to make the most of it. And I think that's really what we should be doing. Amen. So, any other final comments? I just want to say that Genesis is one of my favorite books. We're going to miss being together for the last. I know. Um, it is kind of sad that we're coming to the end of this, this book. I love this book because the narratives have so much depth to them. And this is what life looks like. And it's so easy to like see like how, how to add it to your life and, and see it lived out. Um, so I hope you've been encouraged. It's been good good studying. Um, Ishai Fleischer is glad we're done with this section because... It's so depressing that all the brothers are having issues with each other and all this stuff. And like, okay, finally, now. Now we're on the same page again. Um, so yes, we are, we're ready to move forward. 2.32, I think that's pretty good timing. Um, if you would close us in prayer once you follow. Yes, thank you. Father God, we thank you for today, for uh, Joshua and his uh, excellent leading of the portion discussion. Father, we're grateful for all the blessings you provide to us, we look forward to the coming of Messiah. Father, we thank you for the strong stand our president and our UN ambassador have taken with regard to your land and to the city on which you've placed your eye. Father, we, we look to your coming. Mm. Since I assume, and in our days, and all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joshua. Well done.